Do sit down. And it'd be really helpful for you if you could uh, take hold of a Bible again and turn back uh, to our reading from Acts 21 and 22. I think it was page 11... Was it 1118? That's where it is. 1119. And you'll have a little orange handout in your, your notice sheet, uh, which is just an outline for the sermon tonight. If you find that helpful, uh, keep that in front of you. Oh, well, they're among the, the five most arresting words you can hear. Whether you're a man or a woman, they'll get a response. The name's Bond. <laughs> James Bond. Close your eyes, you can imagine a young Sean Connery up here. I, I, I went with some students... <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't a joke. <laughs> I went with some students uh, during the week. So geared up was I for action hero excitement, I almost went through an amber light driving to the cinema. It was great, it was great, I loved it. The first 20 minutes, hardly any dialogue, it was pure action. Uh, that's what you want, isn't it? Cut the chat, give me the action. Except uh, with a book like Acts, written by Dr. Luke, travelling companion of Paul. Oh, there's enough foreign travel, intrigue, prison cells and escapes to rival any Bond film, but, but Luke structured his book around some lengthy pieces of talking. And you start to realise with Luke, the chat is where the action is, if you listen. Over the past few weeks we've looked at three of these, and this is the final one for the moment, Acts 22. And, and here's where you can check if you were listening during the reading. Because if you were, you'd have to agree it's a very contemporary story. And we read this and we're thrown into a world of, well, a world of religious schools that turn out brutal believers not above resorting to violence. Chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. We'll meet radicalized clerics traveling to other countries to attack the unbelievers. Chapter 22 and verse 5. And we've got government authorities because of past terror activities on high alert looking for the Osama bin Laden of the day. And on occasion, because they're so jumpy, arresting innocent people mistakenly. Chapter 21 and verse 38. And the public, oh twitchy, confused, easily manipulated, not beyond a bit of mob justice. Chapter 21, verses 13 and 31. That sound familiar? And in the middle of it is a Christian. As it turns out, he's the cause of the riot. Paul, the apostle, commissioned with making the good news about Jesus known everywhere. Up he pops and proclaims Jesus to rioters. So if you're a Christian and you want to know how to speak about Jesus in a situation that is anything remotely like this, well then the chat in Acts 22 is where the action is, if you'll listen. And if you're not a Christian, and you want to know if Christianity has anything remotely relevant to say in a modern, complicated world, well then the chat in Acts 22 is where the action is, if you'll listen. And what response should we expect? Well, if Paul and this crowd are anything to go by, I predict a riot. A riot that rejects Christianity. Or a revolution. 
uh, that will transform your heart and life. It's worth filling in a bit of the background in the story. It was, it was quite a long reading, really well read for us. But what are the, the people writing about? Well, their accusation against Paul is in chapter 21, verse 28. You can just have a look at it. And they say this, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place, the temple. And they threw in a false allegation as well. He had, he's brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. He'd not done that. And ironic, really, uh, when Paul, as a mark of Jewish piety, uh, was at the temple performing purification rites and paying the temple expenses for four other Jews. See, these agitators had heard Paul explain the gospel. That how in Jesus... God's plans are fulfilled and people can be forgiven and restored to God. And it's multicultural. It's not just for Jews, it's for everyone. God doesn't show favoritism. And so you understand their accusations. He's anti-Jewish. He wants to destroy our religion, our culture. Their religion and cultural identity, they're an explosive mix, aren't they? Now, Paul's dragged off. They begin beating him to death. The commotion comes to the attention of the Roman commander. Assuming he must be the Abu Hamza of first century Judea, they arrest Paul, providentially saving his life. And not that Rome would be that concerned about Jewish culture, but oh, you need to maintain the rule of law. If you're going to build a sustainable society... You need to look after citizens. Deal with terrorists. The situation's a mess. It's a confused riot. It's about culture, citizenship, how you deal with foreigners and who's in charge. So when Paul says, in chapter 22, verse 1, listen now to my defense. You see why he's got my interest? Does Christianity have something clear to say in this mess? So here's the, the first thing on your handout. A Christianity is not anti-citizenship or anti-culture. And before we get to the rioters, oh, listen to Paul with Claudius. Uh, we learn the Roman's name in chapter 23, and, and he learns some things about Paul in verse 37. Now, far from being an Egyptian terrorist, I tell you, I have every respect for the police these days, uh, the pressure they're under, media scrutiny. Uh, Claudius would know something of that. It is perhaps some comfort to know that mistaken identity, while, while not good, historically at least seems to be understandable in times of terrorist activity. But far from being a terrorist, uh, Paul introduces himself as a citizen. You see verse 39? I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. And he's right. Tarsus was no backwater, it was a university town. Uh, Maybe not a Sheffield, uh, perhaps just an Oxford or a Cambridge. You see, Paul, a follower of Jesus... He's not some kind of disenfranchised revolutionary. He's happy with civic standing. 
He thinks it's entirely right for a Christian to be a citizen. He respects the rule of law. He respects the authority of Claudius. Uh, Please let me speak to the people, is what he says. And he does so on receiving permission. He accepts and expects the protection offered by the governing authorities. He doesn't act like a man who is either frightened by government or principally opposed to it. The Christians are to be good citizens. But there's more. Paul is a Jew. Chapter 22 and verse 3. Now, I, I like being Scottish. I don't know if you'd noticed that I was. My dad, he died a number of years ago, but he liked being Scottish. He would often repeat the Scottish saying, "Was like us, damn few in the raw deed. Which, translated into English, is, who's as good as us? Not very many people, and they're all dead anyway. <laughs> Let me tell you about my dad. Let me tell you a secret about my dad. Because his, his parents were Scottish. And due to work commitments, he was born south of the border. You don't get started. Because if you were to even joke with him about him being English, you'd find yourself in more danger than King Edward's army at the Battle of Bannockburn. 1314. See, born south of the border, but don't be confused about his cultural identity. He was Scottish. Do you see Paul in verse 3 of chapter 22? This man accused of being anti-Jewish. Here's what he says. I am a Jew. Yeah, born in Tarsus, but brought up in Jerusalem. See, he'd read Jewish studies with the leading lecturer of the day. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. A later on in Acts, Paul summarizes the purpose of this visit to Jerusalem. You can read about it in chapter 24. He says this, After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. See, gathering money from Gentile Christians to provide aid for the Jerusalem poor It doesn't sound like a man who's anti-Jewish or anti their culture. This is part of Paul's defense. I'm not anti your culture. I share it. I'm Jewish. I care about Jews. So there is, however, a but. Christianity is not anti-citizenship or anti-culture, but Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. See, citizenship and culture do shape us, but they can shape us in wrong ways, and and Paul knew that. See what he says at the end of verse 3? I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. And he explains, I persecuted the followers of this way, that's Christians, to their death, arresting both men and women. He goes on, I even went to Damascus, to another country, to to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem. So you don't think that the American system of extraordinary rendition, transporting suspects without trial to prison in other countries, is that new? Paul initiated the Jerusalem prototype. 
and all flowed out of his cultural identity, how, how you treat people who are not like you. But he was about to find out that cultural identity may be strong, but it's not ultimate. He pulls on a collision course with Jesus. They meet, verse 6, like all good showdowns at high noon. You know, we read this in Paul's own words. As I, as I came near Damascus, as suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus you notice a couple of things with this encounter. The God who speaks from heaven, who has appeared in history in the person of Jesus, is more than comfortable with culture. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth. Do you notice that? The eternal God in becoming a human took on an accent and an address that would have made him culturally identifiable. And he seems perfectly happy with that. It's a good thing to know about God and about Christianity. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, as it looks forward to God's new creation, pictured there as a wonderful city whose gates are always open because it's so safe. And we'll read these words. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. It is culturally diverse. God likes cultural diversity. So you can look forward to standing beside me as I play the bagpipes for the glory and honour of God. Do things like art, literature, the Brazilian style of attacking football, the English style of defensive cricket, emo music, Chinese food. They are part of life in God's present and future creation. And that's important to know before you get your head around a more significant issue from this encounter. So here's the point. Paul's heading off, driven by his own culture, and he discovers Jesus of Nazareth claims lordship over every area of life. Our previous curate liked to quote Abraham Kuyper's famous words, In the total expanse of human life, there's not a single square inch of which the Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is mine. See, life's intended to be culturally diverse. But cultural life is to submit to Jesus Christ. See, students, did you think that the study of maths or history was neutral? Jesus says, mine. See, if math doesn't lead you to marvel at a God who would create a universe so mathematically ordered, well, you're missing something. See, fashion, family, education, leisure, relationships. But Jesus says, mine. But that's what Paul discovered. His plans shaped by his culture had put him at loggerheads with God. It's the problem the Bible always wants to tell us about. People will not live God's way. We reject his rule. God's plan has always been 
to have a diverse people who live in harmony under his good rule, but, but we think we can do better without him. And the result? Well, it's riots in Jerusalem. It's car bombs in Basra. It's first century Judea. And it's 21st century experience. It'll appear among, even among those who call themselves religious and it'll show up among atheistic secularists. And if you think British culture wouldn't allow those kind of extremes, well then you see the roots of the same thing in snobbery, racism, neighbours and relatives who don't even speak anymore and from the lips of a poison spy reported on the front page of the Times, they got me. What a terrible thing. And in the middle of this kind of world, Paul stands up and says, God has a plan. God has a plan to restore the world. Doesn't that sound like good news? See, even if you're here as a skeptic, don't you deep down want that to be true? Don't you want there to be a God who could fix things? Those plans, proclaims Paul, are found in Jesus of Nazareth. And it's open to everyone. And when these rioters hear their cultural identity is not the ultimate, that they need to submit to Jesus, they say in verse 22 about Paul, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. It's incredible. Now, how would our culture respond to Jesus? As Paul mentioned earlier about Christian unions, Christian unions around the country have been running a course about relationships for Christians called Pure. It's been banned at Edinburgh University because a Christian view of sex and relationships is viewed to be discriminatory and degrading. If you're not a Christian, what do you think? First century Judea, 21st century experience, 20 centuries of history. And life looks as messed up as always. And that's because life will only work as we get to know Jesus of Nazareth. So here's the second thing on the other side of your handout. Jesus is either the terrifying judge or the transforming saviour. Before we look at Jesus, let's just remind ourselves about who Paul is. Paul gets to Damascus in the story. A Jewish Christian, Ananias, comes to him. And among other things, he says to Paul in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 22, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will. And to see the righteous one, that's Jesus, and to hear words from his mouth, you will be his witnesses to all men of what you've seen and heard. Uh, You understand how that that works. Uh, Jesus appears to Paul. Paul's to pass on what he's heard to everyone else. Uh, You understand what we're being told. Uh, Paul has a special role. What's that all about? I made Beef Wellington the other evening. 
uh, Joe Houghton is sitting there. He sampled some of it. I, I'd never made it before, but I heard it was good. I do appreciate recipe books with good instructions and pictures. Do you like that? The ones with pictures. I find they help me because I can compare at the end. My beef wellington looked like the picture, more or less, sort of. It was a bit darker, the pastry, than in the picture. But more or less, I was confident I'd got it right. See, in a way, God has done something similar with Paul here. We've got a little picture. So what happens to Paul, although it's personal, it's not just personal. It's a witness to all of us. See, Paul's encounter with Jesus shows what everyone's encounter with Jesus is like. And it's either as terrifying judge or transforming saviour. So verses 6 to 9, in a world that proclaims truth is relative, there with a few exceptions, moral choices are nothing more than personal preferences, that right and wrong should be replaced with right for me and not compatible with my lifestyle, verses 6 to 9 come as a bit of a shock. Because if Paul's experience is meant to be instructive for us all, then in the middle of the day, on a Middle Eastern roadside, Absolute truth made an appearance and gave his judgment on right for me and my lifestyle. I see, it's one thing to be blasé about God uh, when he seems to be out of the picture. It's quite another story when he's shown up and smacks you to the ground and tells you the verdict on your life is guilty of rebelling against the Lord. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Uh, There's a world of comfort there for the Christians Paul persecuted and for Christians under pressure today for the Lord of heaven takes their suffering very, very personally. But for Paul, he's not feeling comfort in verse 10, is he? What shall I do, Lord? I don't think this is a casual request. This is more like a voice laced with the sound of panic and asking, is there any escape? See, Paul has just met absolute truth. And he appears to be a terrifying judge. And before you think, well, I've not attacked Christians, you don't lose the big picture in the personal details of this story. Of course, Paul is different from you. Of course you've not done all the things he did, but the point is, Jesus is Lord. He claims every life for himself. The trouble with absolute truth is, it's not an option for personal preference. Jesus is showing us in these verses, not only what will happen to a society that tries to live without submitting to him, but also what will happen to individuals who live their lives ignoring him. One day, they will meet the judge. Incidentally, this says something to religious terrorists, doesn't it? But Jesus doesn't seem to have any problems dealing with his enemies himself. Getting flunkies to place cowardly bombs is not his style. He will deal with things personally. So if he's not judging everyone yet, 
you begin to understand why Jesus is showing his power to judge. It's a warning, isn't it? He's showing us this so that uh, people like Paul will ask the question, what shall I do, Lord? And they'll find that Jesus, the terrifying judge, is also a transforming saviour. What shall I do, Lord? The instructions to Paul are interesting. Twice he's told to get up. Verses 10 and 16, just after Jesus has knocked him down. Twice he's told get up. And you get the point. If Jesus has knocked Paul down, it wasn't to knock him out. It was to restore him. Verse 16, chapter 22, get up. Be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. See, the judge who has just delivered a guilty verdict and now provides forgiveness for sin in his name. Luke doesn't give us the details here because he's already told us in Acts about Jesus dying in the place of sinful people, paying the penalty for sin. You've heard the phrase, they scrub up well. It's usually said about scruffy lads, isn't it, who for the first time have showered, put on iron clothes, uh, brushed their hair, you'd hardly recognise them, and you say, wow, they scrub up well. We could almost say that for Paul, couldn't we? Uh, This washing he's received from Jesus, being forgiven and starting to live for Jesus, Jesus really appears to be a transforming saviour. See, if you've not noticed it before, that's what Paul has been telling us and explaining who he is and what he's done. Here's a man who says to a crowd who just tried to kill him, I was just as, jealous, just as zealous for God as any of you. I used to attack other people. But now, do you see him? He's, he's risking his own life to tell his would-be killers how to find forgiveness in Jesus. Anti-Jewish? No, risking his life to help them. Here's a man who travelled to Damascus to arrest people he thought should forfeit their lives. Now he's travelling the world proclaiming this Jesus who gave his life for rebels. Here's a man who's still conscious about his part in the killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He'll mention it in verse 19 of chapter 22 but seems to have found transforming forgiveness, even for guilt like that. Here's a man who loves his Jewish cultural heritage, but who knows Jesus Christ would love and save all people. So in the letters he sent all over the world, he'll call all people brothers and sisters. Here's a man who understands the responsibility of being a citizen. Because he knows the one he's ultimately responsible to. He scrubs up well, doesn't he? Doesn't that begin to sound like the life we want? Jesus has done that. And he'll do it in your life too. God's rescue in Jesus is open to everyone. So how are you responding to him? Well, if you're a Christian already, are you, are you starting to see that transformation? You'll spot it in little ways, and it will start with thinking 
Now, what does Jesus want me to do in this work situation uh, with the person who's hurt me? In how I conduct myself with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? In, in how I approach my art or my study? Or the, with the people who are not like me? Have you started thinking that? Uh, what would Jesus want me to do here? And with those who really oppose Christianity, we will never aim to hurt them, will we? Well, Jesus can deal with those people he needs to, but we'll, in fact, start risking our lives and our reputations to tell them that the judge of all people can be their transforming saviour. And if you're not a Christian, well, the five most arresting words you'll hear They're not the names Bond, James Bond. They are, I am Jesus of Nazareth. But it's the next five words that will determine your future. Will they be, rid the earth of him? Or will they be, what shall I do, Lord? Lord.